Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I don't know how you did it. I know you're telling me how you did it, but I don't know how you did it. <laughs> the man likes his long takes. Terrific. But I was watching Gravity. I'm like, I feel like this would look this like this would look as good if you made it today. I mean, do you feel that way as someone who actually made it? Hey everybody and welcome to the Cinefix Top 100, our struggle to survive in orbit while we watch 100 of the greatest movies of all time. I'm Clint Gage. Joining me as always, Cinefix's very own Hubble telescope, Alex Stedman. And hello, hello, just floating in space. Just floating, floating out there in space. And of course, the mm-hmm. man who once appeared to me as a hallucination to offer his wisdom in a time of need, Michael Calibro. Guys... How we doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. Very excited for today. Awesome. Yes. So if this is your first time joining us here on the Cinefix Top 100, two things. Uh, first, the Top 100 is a list born out of an unholy algorithm perpetrated by our producer, Dan. And he forces us to talk about these movies one at a time. Uh, and second, if this is your first time here, you're not alone because we have a guest this week. Joining us is Academy Award-winning visual effects supervisor, Tim Weber. Tim, thanks for being here, man. Hello. Thank you. It's great. Very exciting to be here. We're, chat. we're very, uh, per Alex's comment already, we're very excited to be talking with you, too. Congratulations on 10 years worth of Gravity is the film we're here to discuss today. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel like 10 years, as always. These things seem to shoot by. Uh, but <laughs> it felt like 10 years making it, but it, it doesn't feel like 10 years since. Well, yeah, that was going to be my first question. Was it actually, have you, has it been out longer than it took to make at this point? 10 years? <laughs> yeah, it, it actually, it took three years really to make pretty much. So yes, it has. But, um, <laughs> okay, good. There's lots of rumors floating around the internet about how long it took to make. It was essentially three years of, of proper production. Which yeah. was still a while. I saw. I saw one uh, guess that it, it was five thousand BC was how long it took to, to render the film. Well, that's yes. Uh, we did calculate um, if we'd rendered the whole film, everything we rendered on one processor, it was around about five thousand BC. It was. It was the time that the pyramids were being built. We would have had to have start, start yeah. the render. Yeah, kicked it off. Yeah. <laughs> That feels that honestly, it feels like it still would have been worth it. But let's dive straight into this movie. This so this is a film that that I I remember I saw in the theaters, and then I read a lot about how you guys made it, and then I went to see it again, um, kind of immediately after that. It's and so like the the sheer amount of stuff you guys had to figure out to make this movie is is remarkable. An awful lot went into it in many, many ways. Uh, um, you know, whether it was the research that needed to be done to understand how things work in space, because we wanted Alfonso, and well, all of us wanted it to be as genuinely grounded in reality as possible. And, you know, you, you can break that where you need to break it, but at least you try uh, to, yeah, the methods of making it, to the hard work that went into making it, you know, developing new techniques and then achieving it. Yeah, that was it was a lot. 
Um, so anyway, we'll, we'll just dive straight into this. this is the first segment that we usually talk about here is the pedigree of, of this movie. Um, you know, usually starting with the Academy Awards, uh, this one got 10 nominations, Best Picture, Best Production Design, Best Actress uh, were all nominated, uh, and then Best Director, uh, Cinematography, Editing Score, Sound Editing, Sound Mixing, and of course, Visual Effects uh, were all wins. So seven out of 10 ain't bad. That's a good night at the, good night at the Oscars. I, I think you can safely say we all had a good night. Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Uh, there's a great picture of, of the table and it wasn't set up, but we've got a photograph of the table that we were all sitting around having drinks afterwards. And it's, a, you know, lots of half drunk drinks and, and a pile of Oscars sitting <laughs> on the table, all, all the various people that won. And it was very good. I mean, one of the a number of those wins were for teams like the visual effect is a team and the sound is a team and we all get an Oscar. So it looked like a lot more than seven. even. So, uh, it was, it was nice. a good a, a good collection yeah i do like well, i do like the image of a literal pile like they're not standing next to each other they're just like exactly. sitting on it yeah it's like that it's like that meme of like adele and beyonce with all their grammys that was basically gravity um no but the this oscar cycle cycle was so wild because one of the reasons i have such a near and dear place in my heart for gravity was this was like my first oscar campaign that i covered as a professional and I was so passionate about Gravity, and it is so fun when you get to cover this move, when you get to cover the cycle, and there's like a movie that you're rooting for, and it was like Gravity. And I felt like we were all kind of rooting for Gravity. Um, but it's funny because Gravity was about my life for like three months, because I was working at Variety Magazine at the time. Uh, Tim, I can imagine your life was similar. Like that movie had a crazy campaign. Oh, absolutely. Do you know, I, I, I'd been nominated before, but, you know, barely involved in the campaign at all because visual effects is, is not generally considered to be that essential, essential a part of a campaign or the awards. It's, you know, it's not the most important award, but because the visual effects was at the heart of gravity, really, and, uh, you know, it was very important and, and I was, yeah, I was a huge part of the campaign and I had to go around to all the awards beforehand and appear at the parties and make sure we were building it up. And I had no idea what goes into a campaign, uh, you know, an Oscars campaign before, uh, absolutely no concept. And the size and the scale of everything that happened, I was flying backwards and forwards to LA to be at these parties and things. It was hard work, very hard work. Um, <laughs> but it, it was it was fascinating and yeah. A big, it was two months of my life, I'd say, just, yeah, and just on the campaign. It's funny because I feel like you, sometimes you like kind of run out of things to talk about if you've been talking about the same movie for so many months. I feel like you probably never ran out of things to talk about when it comes to the VFX of this movie. We'll get into it, but I remember seeing it for the first time. And even then, it's like kind of in my top 10 theatrical experiences, just seeing it in IMAX and what I would give to see it in IMAX again. Um, but. I just, every time I watch it, and it doesn't matter how many making of featurettes I watch and how much I read, I, I just watch it like, I, I don't understand how you did it. <laughs> I'm like, how, why does this exist? How does this exist? How'd they do it? <laughs> I just don't understand to this day. <laughs> well, that's what we aim for, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's great to hear. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get into all of that in, in the, uh, the brilliant moments section here in a second. But uh, just to wrap up some more of this pedigree, I wanted to talk about uh, a couple of the other, uh, you know, big names on this this movie. Cuaron, Alfonso Cuaron, obviously, the director, uh, had prior to this, you know, Itu Mama Tambien and The Prisoner of Azkaban, 
uh, Children of Men was was the one that he had done immediately prior to this, I, I think. But when when did you start working with with Alfonso on this? Uh, on this, uh, or, well, I, actually, I, just I worked, in general. Let's go. This is this is the yeah, pedigree I, section. So go all the way back. Okay. Yeah. Well, I worked with on Children of Men with him. Um, I was a tiny bit involved uh, with the Harry Potter, but but uh, not in any way significantly. Um, but I did. I helped create the baby for um, Children of Men, um, which was a, a great experience and, you know, a, another amazing film, I think. I, I love Children of Men and it was it was great working with him. So, yeah, that led to him coming to me and to us uh, when he had Gravity going. And then the way he came was he was still working on the script. They hadn't finished the script, him and his son, who were writing it. And but he wanted just to check that it was going to be as easy to make as he thought it was. <laughs> um, so he came and I just remember Directors, having a meeting man, with swear. him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was there was sort of three of us in a room and he was just chatting through telling us the story of of the script you know and 40 minutes telling us the story and i was pretty much breathless at the end of that let alone watching the movie you know already it was it was incredibly engaging and tense and uh and yeah he he felt it was going to be quite easy and that we could just hang of some actors in in um, spacesuits against blue screen, and he you know he was worried about making sure that the spaceships would look real enough to be believable. Um, but then, as we got more into it, we realised it was a little bit more challenging that than that. Um, there was a lot more to it, not least because of Alfonso's filmmaking style. Um, uh, the long shots and the language he likes to use made it way way more complicated than any of us realised at that point. You know. It's it's funny because I remember reading somewhere that gravity is I I think eighty percent VFX. I'm I, it sounds like it didn't start like that. It sounded like it kind of kind of grew into that. Well, there was a moment after a, after a few months of talking about it, trying to work out how it was going to be made. There was a moment when we sort of gradually made the decision to essentially create most of the movie uh, in CG uh and just to film the faces essentially you know i mean it wasn't it wasn't like a single decision that happened at one moment it happened over a brief period of time but yes yeah, so to begin with it was looking at all the different options and you know could we try and suspend people from wires could they move in a spacesuit suspended from wires and look like they were floating in space for 12 minutes continuously uh not really um uh so yeah, we, you know, I, I sort of felt it needed to be largely CG and Alfonso needed some persuading for very good reasons. Um, it, you know, no one had done anything that that was that, so needed to be that photo real that was, you know, it. it's, people call it a sci-fi, it's not really a sci-fi, it's a movie set in space, it's not set in the future, it hasn't got blue aliens, you know, um, Avatar had come out before, which was, uh, you know, hugely CG, but it was slightly fantastical. You know, gravity is not fantastical, so it had to feel absolutely real. And uh, apart from all the other complications, just trying to make CG that felt absolutely real, you know, he wasn't convinced that could be done. So we had to persuade him that that could be done, basically. That, that so, it, 
So was like the impetus of this like always going to be like starting with like these like 10 to like 20 minute long takes. And then it was just like, how do we how do we make the How do we make the 20 minute long take? Or did it start with like, hey, this is the idea for the script. Uh, How do we think the best way to cover this is? It started, it's hard to know at what stage it was clear in Alfonso's mind how long the takes were going to be. But I think it was from pretty early on. You know, he he already liked his long takes, Children of Men, you know, the birth sequence I worked on. The man likes his long takes. He likes (laughs) his long takes, yeah. No, well, yeah, so it's, it's... I'm not quite sure where he decided it was going to go as extreme as it was. I think he was probably keeping it from us because because <laughs> otherwise we'd all run away screaming. Um, but it was pretty early on. And, and actually the opening shot, which ended up being at 12 and a half minutes long, and the second shot, which is, uh, I think, about 10 minutes long, were going to be one single continuous shot for a long time. We worked on it as if it was one single continuous shot for quite a while. So I think, yeah, quite early on. Amazing. And I love that he thinks it's just like, hey, I have all these, this, this like script in space. I want to do it all in long shots. This is going to be no problem, right? We, we barely have to cut. We can do this, right? I, I imagine oh, yeah. at some point you guys keep telling him what's possible and he's like, all right, well, might as well do the whole thing in one take, right? And you're like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I didn't say that. Um, yeah. The other, the other uh, creative that I, that I wanted to talk about was uh, Emmanuel Lebeski. Um, because I, I feel like, you know, cinematography in, in a film like this, that's so largely digital is, is the line gets murky in, in a hurry. Um, as, but like, so, I mean, and, and I, I just, in terms of his pedigree looking at, I mean, just this list of directors that he's, he's worked with, obviously Quaron, he's, he's, he's done a bunch of, bunch of work with him, but Terrence Malick and Alejandro and Yaratu, Mike Nichols, Tim Burton, Michael Mann, Coen brothers, David O. Russell, like he even shot reality bites with Ben Stiller, like the, the different styles and the number of different ways that he's gone about like shooting film and, and being a cinematographer is, is really insane. And and I imagine like your your working relationship with him was just a, another completely different way to go about being a DP for him. I would imagine. Yes, we we had to work much more closely together than you would normally work. You know, he and and one of the great things about Chivo, one of the many great things, is he was totally willing to embrace a different way of working. To you know, to work to light stuff in the computer. We did we we designed all the lighting in the computer. We did a before we got on stage, we did a pre-light stage where we, you know, we sort of designed it with him, and and that's just a way he hadn't worked before, and he embraced it and he understood it, and he worked very closely with me. Um, so it, it was it was a really fascinating and enjoyable experience, and I think a big part of the success of it all was how closely a lot of us had to work together in ways that we didn't normally, you know, because it was a very different production method to normal. Everyone had to do things in different ways and engage with other departments in different ways. And I think uh, working with Chivo was was a a real positive example of that. And uh, yeah, a huge part of what made it work. It's so cool. I mean, filmmaking has always been an insanely collaborative effort to begin with, but it it feels like it was even more so on on this movie. But the so essentially, were were you like building digital, like a digital grip truck, basically, for him to work with? Is is that kind of like... 
we weren't. <laughs> that's that's how I'm picturing it. Which <laughs> yeah, no, we we weren't uh, massively emulating sort of real world physical elements, uh, but so but we were. You know, we were working in some of the some similar ways that you do. If you see what I mean, you know, we wouldn't build a physical, but we were moving lightings. We'd we'd create giant bounce cards in the sky in in the in the computer. You know, um, and as as Alfonso says, actually, one of the things that made Chivo so happy was it's the first time he could actually say, "Can you just move the sun a few <laughs> thousand million kilometers <laughs> round to the left of it, <laughs> and it could happen?" Oh, um, so, uh, I'm so yeah, happy. We, I'm so happy to hear that because that's like the joke on set, right? It's like, "Could you stop moving the sun, please? We need about ten more minutes." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we did actually. You do literally. Yeah. Moved the sun. <laughs> yeah. That's great. You gotta admit one thing: can't beat the view. Um, I mean, we've we've already talked about the the opening shot uh, a little bit, not not in a ton of detail, but um, but I mean, we can dive right in if we want. I feel like that's as good a place to start as any. Is this? I mean, you have to. It's, yeah, it sets the whole premise of the sh it sets the whole premise of the movie. It also wasn't all the trailers. That's what made me want to go see the movie. Was like because that's what like they advertised it with. So I was like, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go see this. I, I think it was it was the shot of her unbuckling and flying away from from the arm. That was the poster, yeah. which I had that poster of her just like tiny little speck in the in the night. Yeah. One of the things I love about that first shot um, is it, not just how long it is, but how it contains so many different sort of elements of movie making from establishing shots to just a normal dialogue scene to, you know, sort of drama to action to, you know, as you say, the spinning away. It's sort of ev every style almost is compressed into that one shot as a continuous tape. I think so, that's, I love so that. that's one of the things that I want to ask you about. I, like when I was like reading about how you guys made this movie, I, I keep on thinking about that. There's like that old Hitchcock saying that like movies are made in pre-production and this is like very much feels like this, right? Where it's like, it, from reading about it, it's like not only did you guys do like pre-viz, but then there was like that tech viz, which I think is the part where they go through and light it all, right? Like, can you talk to me about like the importance of like blocking in that shot? Because to your point, it's like 12 minutes and it's going in and out of frames and stuff like that. And like the camera can't mo cut, so it has to move. So like, how did like you guys all work together to make sure that like that framing is always like visually appealing and always like motivated and stuff like that? Yeah. The, the, well, the previs was critical to it, and we spent months working on the previs. We previs pretty much the whole movie, not quite, but pretty much. And for shots like that, it totally to choreograph the action and the camera move and everything to be able to go from an establishing shot to a close up to a two shot to a you know the right. You've got to edit with the camera, um, otherwise it would be very dull. So it all had to be choreographed perfectly. Uh, it, it was a lot of work. And, and then, as you say, we prevised it. And, and back then when you did previs, it was just gray, basic human-like shapes that you animated to, to work out the movement largely. But we then had to design the lighting as well because the lighting would have to work and be continuous and the camera was going everywhere. Not just everywhere it would go if you were shooting on a stage floor where you're kind of moving in two dimensions because there's no up and there's no down. You're totally the camera's moving in three dimensions the people are moving in three dimensions they're upside down they're spinning around everything's got to look great from whatever angle you know uh so the pre-light was was very important and then once we'd 
previs the basic action, pre-lit it uh, to make the lighting work at every beat of, of this shot. And then we did the tech viz, which was really about working out how we would shoot it because we didn't shoot it as one single continuous take. There's some cheating joins going on. Cheating um, in filmmaking? How <laughs> dare you? Get out. Out. <laughs> this interview is uh, over. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, we, we had to, so I sort of divided it up into sections and then we worked out, we had a few different methods of shooting it and we worked out which one will be appropriate for which moment. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm curious about when you look at all the time that you spent on this movie, how much of it do you think was spent on this opening sequence? Because I feel like this is one of this is maybe correct me if I'm wrong, the most complex in the movie. Yeah, well, we, as I said, we spent three years making the movie and we spent three years making the opening sequence. Uh, it was the first shot <laughs> that we started to work on and it was the last shot that was was finished. So it, it, it went on for the whole period. I mean, obviously, not necessarily a huge number of people working on it throughout, but uh, but yeah, it, it took the full three years to finish. And I, I guess this question is going to sort of ask you to remember a meeting you had 13 years ago. Um, but the, I, I'm curious about like when when you're you know in, in talking to to Quaron about you know that that when he was first describing the story and oh this is going to be easy to shoot and we'll just hang people from the like thinking about the challenges of realistically depicting zero gravity and and doing it in a oneer and doing doing all of these like at what point. Because one, of the, I, I guess where I'm where I'm getting to is I want to talk about uh, the light box, not Sandy's cage, <laughs> um, yeah. which I, I read was was what you guys started nicknaming it. But so, at what point did you realize you had to build stuff like that? Like that that's the thing because like I always love hearing about like well we had a robot arm you know with the camera on it to you know there's there's but like at what point do you realize like we're gonna have to invent some stuff to make this movie. I think the realization we had to invent some stuff to make it came pretty early. Uh, you know, the big first decision, which I've mentioned already, was the point where we decided everything would have to be CG apart from the faces. Um, that that was a key decision. And then from there, we had to work out how we were going to film the faces. We, we also had to work out how we would render the CG and make it look believable. But um, but we, all, we had to work out how we were going to film the faces in such a way that the actors could understand how they were performing, um, you know, in, in whatever, you know, what, what their environment was when they were performing and where the lighting was m moving in very complicated ways. Because if an actor is spinning around, we can't spin them in the studio. Um, so we had to move the camera around them. We had to move them a bit, move the camera around them. But that meant they weren't moving in the way they would be, which meant we also had to spin the lights around them. Um, so it, it was, you know, it was a gradual working out of stages. We started deciding it was going to be CG and we had to film the faces. There was then a suggestion from uh, Christopher, the studio uh, producer, uh, who had come across car robots being used to film things. And we realized it was a great way to move the camera, but, and we realized we could also put the lights on it and we could have three of these car robots programmed together and they could be moving in sync. So we get coordinated light movement and camera movement. 
And then we gradually realized that that worked for some shots, but there were some where the lights had to move way too fast and the choreography was way too complicated. And we realized that you can move the light around, not by physically moving lights, but by having a giant TV screen, essentially, um, and moving the, the picture of the light around the giant TV screen. So uh, that's how it led us to building the light box, essentially, uh, you know, millions of, I think it was 1.8 million, if I remember correctly, um, individual LEDs, essentially, in a box all facing inwards, and we could just, you know, program how bright each LED was. Amazing. So like you guys built the light box specifically for this, not like adapting it from something else, like, you know, like the, the, the robot arms. Cause like you watch all this behind the scenes stuff now. And it's like, this very much looks like these like proto volumes, which they use to shoot like the Mandalorian and they have like the big LED walls. And it's like, here it is fifth, like 10 years ago, you know, like doing all <laughs> Yeah, in many ways, that is what it is, I'd say, you know, we and we would have uh, that, you know, we almost shot some shots where we used the light box as a background. But back then, the resolution of the LED screens was not high enough and it was too blobby. It, it almost worked for some out of focus shots, but not quite. So we didn't in the end. But it, in many ways, it sort of was the beginning of using stuff in that way you know pe people had used some led screens a little bit before although actually i wasn't aware at the time um but it was the first time that it was used yeah properly for, for, for a sort of movie amazing yeah and you, you came about that just sort of slowly tugging on this thread of solving problems as you go i guess which is a yeah. wonderfully meta narrative for the actual movie too. <laughs> like yeah. it's, that's great. <laughs> well, I think our journey was quite similar to Ryan yeah. Stone's. Yeah, just being hit in the face by another challenge right. uh, every <laughs> as soon as you solve one, some yeah. new field of debris comes flying. Yeah. <laughs> every ninety well, minutes, something flew through yeah. the studio. And you're yeah. Like, ah. I think yeah. that's what like so is so crazy to me about this movie and I think why we should talk about it when we talk about the m milestones in the modern VFX industry like so much of this movie was not you guys adapting processes it was you guys creating new processes like you invented them for this movie I, I think that's true yeah we we did invent an awful lot of things you know given that we uh, or, or even if we didn't invent them we pushed them on a lot further than they were before you know with the car robots arms and the light box certainly and the 12 wire rig another um sort of you know it was a tool used to puppeteer sandra um uh, yeah quite a few inventions and using new technologies to render the material and uh, yeah we we had to it, it's you know necessity is the mother of invention we, we had to uh because there was no other way to do it so so we did let's get out of here I do want to move on to some of the some of the smaller things that, that are in this because I'm curious it's the the shot for as as technically brilliant as it is just as a as a whole like in, in its totality is, is crazy but like the thing that sells it for me are all these little moments there's one little tiny little moment where she's like brushing there's like a cable kind of floating in in her in her way and then she brushes it away to to continue working and like that you know building 
what, what was the process like with, you know, building those moments into this, this big, you know, is it, is it easy to miss the, miss, forget about those details when you're thinking about the scope of what you're trying to do? There's a retainer in the frame. Yeah. All, all of that stuff is, in, is incredible. Yeah. 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 They all just get added gradually as you're working on it. Someone said to me the other day, uh, in fact, it was David Heyman. I think he was quoting someone else, but he said directing is a million very small decisions. Um, you know, directing a movie, and I think it's just generally true of filmmaking altogether. It's millions and millions of very small decisions that just add up and add up. And yeah, I, I know the moment you're talking about, and it's that little section is one of my favourites. It's like the, it's one of the parts of the movie where, in many ways, the least is happening, but. The animator who worked on that section was a real talent and the way he made things move, the way he made her gloves move and the circuit boards bounce as she pushed them in and the little twitches she does in, you know, sort of uh, the detail, the level of detail he put into it that made all those moments happen is what brings it to life. Yeah, it's what it, it just but, transforms it. it. And it certainly shows too, because I mean, that, that's, you know, this is we're floating around space in a in a 12 and a half minute wonder this is not a, a natural state of being for any of us to like there's no real frame of reference for it aside from like some nasa you know pictures you may, may or may not have seen so it's those tiny little like that's the moment where it becomes relatable right like that moment of like i'm trying to do this thing and there's something in my way like that's so it's those are the tiny little brilliant moments that that i think really I mean, really sell the thing, which, you know, including, you know, all, all of the all of the stuff you guys did to accomplish this thing to then just have somebody add that little like, yeah, get out of my way. I'm working here kind of kind of moment like in the in the interest of making it feel real and grounded and relatable like that. Those are the things that do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, to your point, like you even have that scene where like she loses the screw and then George Clooney kind of grabs it for her. Um, but I also just before, like, I want to make sure I'm, the sound design in this whole sequence is also incredible um, from them talking. And it's almost, you can just barely hear them. Uh, I just, I, this whole movie, it doesn't make space noisier than it needs to be, but the score is still appropriately really dramatic and kind of ominous when it needs to be. Yeah, it was it was a challenge because you don't hear any sound in space. And uh, that was very important to Alfonso, as I say, where, wherever he can be grounded in reality, he wants to be. Yeah, it's and, on a title card at the, at the start of the movie. It's just like, hey, you yeah. can't hear anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, that wasn't that wasn't an accident. You're not supposed to hear things. <laughs> yeah. So, so he did. He he. He used music and you know in ways that made it give the same impact as uh, sound where necessary, but also use the fact that you can hear in, in the spacesuits, you can hear when you're touching something, the sound gets transmitted through the physical touch of an object and obviously the radios to be able to build up enough sound and the different qualities of that sound and you know, the sound team then Fremantle were, you know, tweaked it again, attention to detail is what makes it really and, and it just all builds up to be believable so they well they built that soundscape out of like the technical radio broadcasts of like echoes of a space of like a touch in a spacesuit kind of thing it's it, it, I, I mean the it's, ways they actually physically recreated it are probably so far away from 
what was actually happening up there. They, you know, I mean, if you're talking about cheating in movie making, yeah. the, the sound effects guys, the Foley do all sorts of bizarre things, don't they? So, um, but yeah, they, you know, they made sure that when certain sounds were coming, if it was because she's touching something, so then she can hear something that it, yeah, it had this exactly the right sort of timbre that made differentiated the different sounds. Well, I like what you said earlier, Tim, about it's not science fiction. It's just a fictional tale, but it's science. Um, one thing I, I noticed a lot in rewatching it, too, was I can't imagine how hard it must have been to keep the lighting correct, because you have the lighting on her helmet, but also the lighting on the earth. Uh, was that like kind of like something you had to fix a lot throughout production? Yeah, the, the, the lighting was incredibly complicated because as I mentioned before, it had to be able to rotate and spin around. So that was challenging enough, but it wasn't just the sunlight that has to do that. The lighting, there is, you know, a huge amount of the light comes off the bounce off earth and the complexity of that, um, you know, bits of the earth are blue because they're sea and bits are brown because it's the Sahara desert and bits are white because they're clouds. And the, the way that reflects on a human face uh, let alone in the visor, um, you know, so we, we had to get get all of that complexity in the light onto the faces. Otherwise, it would have looked like they were shot in the studio. It wouldn't look like they were really there. Uh, so we had to do that whilst we were shooting. And then that would have to move all over the place, um, which is why, you know, we, we tried attaching giant lights to uh, the car robot arms but they started to bump into things quite quickly and that's why we ended up using the, the light box um but uh yeah and then and then we'd have to put it all on you know it would have what we shot on the faces would have to match the cg and the visors were put in in cg and the lighting the way the light bounced off the visors and it all had to tie together so you'd see the reflection of the earth in the right place for the light on their face and it would be all content you know, in continuity over the whole shot and yeah yeah so a lot of when i was watching like the, clumsy robots yeah because like when i was watching the like the making of stuff right like it's basically you guys are just taking their face and even though that they have their like heads in a helmet there's no glass or anything over their face it's just like pure capture and then all of that stuff is just added digitally absolutely yeah they we put sort of things that were vaguely like spacesuits on them and helmets on them but that was just to cast the right shadow on the face or if if sandra puts her arm up like that you know we had something white on her sleeve so there'd be a little bit of bounce light off the sleeve that that's why all those elements were there but none of none of it was used yet it was just the face that was used everything else was generated all a that performance to just thing get the too, right probably. yeah all that right. to just get the right lighting to bounce off the face yeah oh absolutely yeah i mean it, it it does have to be like that and chivo is incredibly pernickety about all of those details and getting it absolutely right and you, yeah you know what the thing i like about all of this is is like what's fascinating right like there's so much now like in today's like vfx like in vfx talk right about like ai and like you know um Peter Cushing in like Rogue One like you know there's like the uncanny valley of it all where we're like they're computers just can't quite do it and what is so like fascinating about like this production is the lengths that you guys went to get the actual face because that is the thing that you knew can't be faked and it I, I love it because it kind of echoes like this like 
like philosophy of like 90s like action cinema right in like the early days of cgi and like jurassic park and stuff like that like they knew that it was a simpler time and computers can do a little bit but they can't do everything and where like all that genius comes from and is not just having the computer do it but having the computer work on the fringes of the thing because you know exactly what can't be faked and that is like what i think is absolutely fascinating about all the problem solving you guys did to just make sure that like this part is absolutely real absolutely yeah you used the right tool for the right job and you know computers then could not do faces sufficiently well enough and you know they struggle even now i, I think if you had to do cg faces for the whole of gravity it, it, it you'd fall into the uncanny valley throughout the movie um so it's about using the right thing for the right job and and generally that is doing everything real wherever you can possibly do it real you know what one of the jobs of a visual effects supervisor is to do as little visual effects on a movie as you possibly can is to find physical ways and and i grew up you know working on you know before cgi was possible and having to try and do stuff practically and you could do a little bit of compositing and joining images together but so i love the challenge of how to come up with a physical solution that you can shoot and how you can manipulate that to get more than just the physical solution and then adding the CGI where that's the right tool, you know, just to finish it off. Well, to your point, I feel like that's why the movie, not that 10 years ago was that long ago, but I feel like that's why it holds up so well. Because when I was rewatching it just a couple of days ago, it had been a, a few years since I returned to it. And I was kind of curious. I was like, is it going to like look a little dated? Because sometimes I even feel that way about Avatar, as stunning as it was. Sometimes I'll watch it. I'm like, eh, if you made that today, you could do it better. And he basically did with Way of Water. Um, but I was watching Gravity. I'm like, I feel like this would look this like this would look as good if you made it today. I mean, do you feel that way as someone who actually made it? Uh, I, I, I hope that it does stand up yes I, I i it's it's really hard to judge it myself um i hope that it does stand up i mean unquestionably we could do little elements better but i hope that it generally felt real enough that the, the difference would be minor not not significant you know? i guess the other the other half of that question the other side of, of that one is is do you see the seams at all when you it, it, when you watch it? it you, you mentioned there there's a couple right. things that maybe you could have done better but like is there anything that revisiting that because it also is funny like we're talking about a movie that's 10 years old saying like well in those days and it's like well nowadays we like it's it's not that long ago right but you know yeah. uh is there anything that that stands out to you there are elements yeah um I, I, you know there always is and and that's the curse of working on something like that you you watch it again and all you can see are the things you wish you'd changed you know um but, but they're not big you know they're not they're, they're small elements speaking of speaking of small elements i do think of like one of the the things that i'm like totally fascinated about in this film right is uh the particle physics of it all like so you know clint was talking a lot about how like the nice small moment on when she's like working on the circuit boards and stuff like that and like you know there's like these little like these little animations and stuff to like really sell that reality how like now like when the shrapnel comes in like hits the international space station and like yeah like that's the other that's next on my list to talk yeah. about it's about 50 50 something minutes yeah. into the movie the second time the shrapnel comes yeah. around is outrageous and like the mayhem erupts. Oh, yeah. How did you guys like work to find that balance between like, you know, 
traditionally and manually animated things and then like the particle physics of just like shrapnel coming around because it's like little bits and pieces that fill up this entire frame and i just i can't believe every one of those things is individually animated no uh, and and that's the challenge yeah yeah so if you're talking about the moment i think you are where the iss gets yeah. destroyed yeah. and she's floating around on the outside yeah um that that was another massive challenge because to coordinate all of that uh to coordinate making sure the camera was in the right place to see the right destruction behind her and the you know the right place to understand her journey through that and that everything was breaking up in the right way at the right time it, it could neither be totally simulated you know we, we couldn't just do a computer simulation but we couldn't do an animation and craft it by hand neither of those would work so we had to sort of use a bit of both but and bounce backwards and forwards between simulating a bit then working out what you could do with the camera and then working out how you could animate and move something around to change it and then sort of on the basis of that re-simulating it and removing the camera and you know and it went through many many iterations of you know everything going into it and bouncing backwards and forwards between techniques really i don't know how you did it i know you're telling me how you did it but i don't know how you did it <laughs> it's insane because yeah that that sequence where where there's an explosion behind her and then and stuff ripping through the parachutes too like the the yeah. the liquid looking sort of cloth in zero gravity as shrapnel is tearing through it like all of that was just incredible yeah weirdly the parachute was one of the hardest bits to achieve actually that's that's um, the thing i'm, al I'm always interested about because there's these right. massive things happening and you're thinking oh i bet i know what the hardest part of that was and it's like no 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 it was the parachute in the background that was <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah exactly Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I want to make sure we touch on this, which is the 3D conversion of this film. Uh, like this, 10 years ago, if we want to make 10 years ago feel like a long time, this was like the heyday of the 3D boom, which is, seems like a lifetime ago <laughs> and like i like i personally am still a sucker for 3d movies i like them a real lot i think that they're it, it's a great like cinematic experience not not as much it's not as much in the home but anyway this is like one of my top five like 3d movies of this era and i just remember sitting in there and just like watching like all of this happen in like that 3d space and just being like genuinely impressed with it and then finding out later that it was a conversion and not actually shot shot in stereoscope and then that's just like then it just took it to another level to me 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it, I think what makes a movie, you know, really work in three D or not is whether it's appropriate to be in three D as much as how it's made in three D. I'd say, um, and this is the perfect movie to be in three D. It, it's all about immerse immersivity, if that's a word. It's all about it immersion. Is now. Um, <laughs> you, you invented the light box. You can invent a word. It's fine. <laughs> Uh, it's all about the immersivity and, and, you know, 3D adds to the immersivity. Um, it's, it's long shots. 3D is much better in, in long shots. Um, you know, when you're cutting and editing around it, 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 3D is often not as effective. In fact, you have to reduce the 3D sometimes with, in fast editing sequences because it's too disturbing. Um, so it's an ideal movie for conversion to 3D. And also, I would say, Whilst it was all shot uh, flat, you know, and the, the live action all had to be converted, we did render, the CGI was rendered stereo, so it was rendered twice. Oh. Not, in ev not in every situation, but it, for a lot of it, so, we were able to render it twice. So, so it's basically it's a bit just, of a cheat. It's basically just the faces were the only, like, 2D element in this, like... Yeah, I mean, when she's in the capsules, that was completely converted, you know, even the 3D. But yes, we we were able to just convert the face and rest and render the 3D around it. I mean, that required a bit of coordination as well to make sure that we were rendering in the right way for the conversion because they're two separate processes and they had to be sort of tied together. That was a bit of a challenge. But yeah, it, it worked very effectively. Definitely. I mean, it's one of those, everyone says about every movie, oh, you've got to see it on the big screen. But there's no question with gravity that you have got to see it on the big screen because it's about immersion. And really, ideally, you should see it in 3D. There's not many movies I'd say that about, but I, I, I think it's so, one that is. So the ideal, for you, the ideal viewing experience of gravity, is it uh, big screen in 3D or big screen in 2D? Big screen 3D, yeah. I think it is. And like I said, I wouldn't say that about many films, but Gravity, big screen the, 3D. The thing I'm always... And if you watch it, if you watch it on a, on the back of a seat on an aeroplane, I, I, I that's just wrong. <laughs> I, I've some, I've wanted to go and shake people when I'm walking down an aeroplane. I've seen Don't do that. Have you ever caught somebody watching Gravity on an airplane seat? Uh, uh, oh yeah. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> I've seen it. I thought you can't, you can't. <laughs> God. Also, I don't, it's so scary. I don't know if I want to watch it on a plane. I was like, no, well, yeah. <laughs> well, now I, I don't want to be I in think, the air while I watch Gravity. I mean, the scarier part of that is thinking that, that maybe Tim Weber might sneak up behind me and be like, what are you doing? <laughs> doing? Yeah. I would just love, to, I just like, I now have a picture in my mind of like the studio flying you all around for like the for like the uh, the Oscar campaign, so you could do your chats, and every time you have to hop on a plane, you're just like sitting there watching some guy watch Gravity watch. on an airplane. <laughs> well, you know the yeah. weird the weirdest part about watching movies on airplanes is inevitably Dude, I end up watching more I of always, the guy two rows in front of yeah. me, like through the seats. So like that. I'm always watching other people's TVs. Yeah, on yeah, airplane, way more than mine. I don't know what it is. About <laughs> yeah. That. Yeah. Well, to yeah. that point, too, not that uh, Gravity was short of Oscars, but I do wonder if Gravity would have won Best Picture if uh, you had to go to a theater to watch it, because the way that Academy votes work is they send out screeners. So I think a lot of people watched it on their TVs. That is not the ideal way to watch Gravity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. who knows how much difference that made. Yeah. Well, we'll need a, to get with the studio and see if we can't get it back on big screens and in 3D so we I'm can saying. all watch it again. 
Um, I would pay a lot of money to see it on IMAX again in 2023. Yeah. Well, in London, they are about to put it back on in the IMAX really? in London, which is great uh, for the 10 year anniversary. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm taking my son to see it who was too young to see it the first time. So I'm quite excited. Oh, that's great. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. So uh, there was there was one other thing I want to talk about. It, um, I, I want to talk about little little bits, um, in particular, the fire extinguisher. Like, and, and it's kind of a narrative beat that gets sort of threaded throughout the movie. Um, and I guess the question is sort of like, at, at, you know, I just want to make sure, like, at what point was that entered into the, was it in the script? Was it in, because, like, this fire extinguisher ends up becoming, like, a lifeline for her. And she, we're first introduced to it, like, we get the exposition of it. She tries to do the fire, and it works like a propulsion system and, like, blows her back. And, and so at first, it's another obstacle for her. She literally gets hit in the face with it. Um, and then, like, she barely kind of gets it into the, the capsule with her. She it kind of clangs around on the thing. And she, there's a lot of stress involved in this, in this fire yeah. extinguisher. And she carries it with her. And it ends up being the thing that gets her to the Chinese space station and it saves your life. And she keeps, and then there's a moment where she forgets, she grabs it at the last second. She's like, oh wait, yeah, okay, now I'm ready. When she's got her fire extinguisher. So, you know, in, in building this movie that is full of these elaborate wonders and everything being rendered so meticulously and, and built so, so thoroughly, like little through lines like that, like, I mean, they were in there. Were they in there the whole time? Did you get to the end and realize you needed to go back and, and add a little a little thing of stress or? No, I think that one was was very much in there in in the script. Um, I'm trying to remember whether there were any little moments that were added as we went through. But I think, you know, Al Alfonso has a lot in his mind from very early on, has planned a lot out. And, uh, you know, I, that one was definitely planned and I'm fairly sure all of those little moments were in there from from script stage. Yeah. 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 I think it was just an incredible bit of like it's it's one of those bits of filmmaking that's like, well see that's how you do exposition. Like you 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 show it to people and you explain it. You you see like see what this this fire extinguisher can do. And then when she does it later you 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 get it and you you know uh, well, was... I will say, and there's a lot of propulsion physics in, I don't know if that's a real term or if I'm making it up, but there's a lot of, because you have the jetpack with uh, George Clooney earlier, and then you have her kind of pushing herself with the fire extinguisher. Like, how much did you have to learn about those kind of physics in order to do this right? The, the immersivity of propulsion physics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, luckily, I had studied physics at university. Um, well, I'd say I was studied theoretical physics because in theory I was studying physics in fact I spent more time in the art school than the physics lab but um but so I had a fairly good understanding of that sort of thing but I had to do lectures for the animators in particular particularly during previs when we were working out the sequences I literally stood up with a whiteboard in front of them and explained how uh you know zero gravity works how propulsion physics works and how the lack of air resistance affects things because when you're an animator, one of the hardest things to achieve when you're an animator is weight. It's to give people and things that are moving weight and make them feel like they've got weight. So it's in their blood. They, they've been trained over years to make sure things have weight. And suddenly that's exactly what they're not doing. Or at least half the effective weight, you know, has disappeared. Um, and so it was quite a challenge for them to, to you know, adapt. So, yeah, we we, we had little talks and discussions and lectures and uh, you know talking through how those things would work 
And also, actually, we used simulations. We did computer simulations, for example, with the jetpack. At one stage, we made a device that uh, was like a little mini computer game. You had a joystick and you could imagine the joystick was controlling the jetpack of Kowalski as he flew across your screen and you'd try and fly him across the screen. And then we had a rope and we had uh, Sandra on, you know, on the other end and we'd try and fly it across. And it was incredibly hard um, to, to, to achieve the path you were trying to achieve. But also we realized how, you know, when, when the, you know, the lead astronaut, when the string got taught, the tether between them got taught, that it wouldn't just suddenly start dragging the, the astronaut who was being towed, that there would be a bounce effect, that you'd get to the She gets yanked over and over, yeah. I, and yeah. It, she would bounce, he bounced back, and they'd bounce all over the place, yeah. And, and then that is something that Alfonso then, ah, oh, that's amazing. He wrote that into the script. He, we, we discovered it in the simulation. He went, oh, that's great. And it became, there was one scene where, where, you know, they're just bouncing all over the place and trying to get control. And it became a quite an important element of their journey. Yeah. Oh, I love that he wrote, that's such a good detail that I actually did know about this movie because it just like every time she gets yanked, Sandra's just like, Ugh, and you're just like, Ugh. oh my God, <laughs> I just feel so bad for her. Yeah, I, yeah. I would uh, like to picture those days in the ADR booth of, of, you know, Sandra Bullock and George Clooney just going, Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. for like two hours to get the right, Ugh. <laughs> yeah, there was quite a lot of that. Oh no, but I, I want to go back to the fire scene too, because uh, I this this is one that really actually struck me on a rewatch more than I thought it would, um, because the rest of the movie is so it's so out in the open, obviously in space, but the fire scene is different because it's so claustrophobic. Like suddenly you're in the vast nothingness, and then suddenly there's a fire coming towards you. Um, was that did that feel different for you to make as it did to watch? It, it did actually. It, it had very different challenges to being out in space. I mean, generally, being inside the space stations had a lot of different challenges. Uh, not least, she didn't have a spacesuit on um, for most of it, uh, which meant we couldn't hide behind the CG spacesuit. Um, but and the fire scene in particular, the lighting was quite complicated. Actually, simulating the fire was quite a challenge at the time. And the choreography of the action again was very tricky, and there was there was one moment where we ended up it it wasn't working. There was two issues. One, I can't remember what it was, but something wasn't working about the way she was moving around and flying around. It just wasn't physically looking right. And at the same time, there was a feeling that when when everyone had watched the whole movie, that that scene was a bit too long anyway. And I remember sort of sitting there and thinking, oh, I think there's a way around, we can solve both those problems in one go. And I sat there and I kind of worked it out in my head that we could join one bit onto another bit and have her spin round, too complicated to explain, but have her spin round and the camera spin round. And we used the footage of her in a way that was totally not intended, totally different to what we planned to shoot, but it came together and it worked. And we managed to cut out 20 seconds of the shot and and the physics of it worked and it looked like you know that the, and the drama of it worked and it all just came together and that was one of my sort of proudest contributions to the film really is is you know uh solving multiple problems in one go so very very tricky choreography and very tricky you know making the action sit together with the drama beats as well 
Yeah, I do like that space station sequence too. For and and again, it's one of you know, I, I feel like I talk about the the smaller things on this show more than I do the, the bigger things generally. But like the moment where a little droplet of water hits the camera, hits the lens, like when she's cruising through the the space station. Again, it's it's those little things. Like okay, this this is starting to feel real again. Like. Not that any well, of it isn't, but like you know, you know what I mean. The, it's it's and, those yeah. those little little additions there. Quran does that a lot, though. He does that in Children of Men too. The, oh, the yeah. kind of camera is the character. Like that's a very Alfonsoism, yeah, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, in fact, in Children of Men, there was, I think it was some blood got splattered on the lens right when yeah. they were towards, shooting towards the beginning of that of that long take too. I think I think there's yeah. blood on the lens for like 13 minutes or something. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's on for a long time. And uh, initially, it was because it was there for real. Initially, it was removed digitally. And then everyone went, actually, I, I think it was better. Alfonso said, I think it was better with it. Just <laughs> so leave it on. Get, people spent <laughs> months painting it out. <laughs> actually, put it back on. Come on, Matt, talk to me. Tell me where you are. Give me your position. I do also want to talk about, uh, and and this is you know the the scene where uh, where Kowalski shows back up. The she's in the I guess it's the Soyuz, the the capsule at, at that point, and she's kind of she's kind of given up. And then she, Kowalski shows back up, and they have that conversation. And that's another you know, and it's one I had to go back and, and double check, but that's another ten something minutes uh, around there worth of worth of you know, one take. Um, so, and that's a, you know, I think you mentioned it earlier. It's one of those quiet beats that, that, you know, it, it's, it's, that are just as important as anything. So like, how important was that scene? Was that scene ever considered to, to be chopped up any more than that? Or, or how important was that to, to get an emotional beat like that in, in a oneer as well? Uh, I don't think it was really considered to be chopped up actually. Um, 10 years ago, I'm not sure I'm remembering correctly, but I think it was just that was one that was always a single shot. Uh, it And it was in many ways more challenging because there's because there's less CGI in it, there's less places to hide any joins. Um, so the joins had to be very carefully crafted and, and worked into it. And the performance obviously had to be incredible to, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't quite all one take, but there were some very, very long takes in there. And, uh, it, it had to sell the story without the ability to use this take here. And, well, I think we might have done a little bit of that, but you know, sort of normal, the normal tricks you can do with editing to help perform. So, uh, yeah, that, that was I, uh, uh, one of Sandra's amazing, <laughs> you know, tour de force moments, I'd say. Right. Yeah, I mean, there was 10 solid minutes of like talking to some random Scandinavian and then hallucinating. And then like, it's, it's a lot, a lot yeah. happens. <laughs> Yeah, it does. <laughs> and it's also funny because, too, when he first opens the door, and I, I don't know why I specifically remember. I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, she would get sucked out of the door. And then you quickly realize that it's obviously a dream sequence. But it's one of those moments that kind of, like, tricks you for half a second. Uh, but then it's like, oh, obviously he's dead. And this is well, I, think, I mean, all the work that had been done up until that point to to ground the thing and to, like, there's a trust that, that the movie has earned at that point to be like, what I'm watching is is like trustworthy and realistic and like what's had the physics of what's happening on screen like I can buy into because of all the work that's happened up in you know in the 70 whatever minutes that we've we've spent up until that point um so like yeah I don't mind her not getting sucked out of the door even even before I realized it was a hallucination you know so <laughs> I think that's true it's a lot of 
filmmaking is about earning you know something up to a point there's a, there's another example of that uh, when she f first makes it back to the ISS and there's the lovely sort of fetal moment where she's floating around as if she's in the womb of the airlock and there's the sort of the tether or the umbilical cord is like an umbilical cord and it's it, it's quite a long shot and it's a very beautiful moment in the film and a very emotional moment in the film but there was a point where uh you know feedback was coming back from screenings at the studio that it was too long and it was too boring and we were losing the audience and you know etc etc and we need to shorten it and cut it and I just remember Alfonso said no that's not the problem it's not that shot that's the problem and I'm not shortening that shot that is an incredible shot you know uh, what the problem is is that we haven't earned it we haven't got people breathless enough up to that point that they need to relax and enjoy that moment and you know and take a deep breath and so we worked on you know the tension and making the excitement bigger and the you know the drive and the tension bigger beforehand and uh, that's what made the difference yeah it was it was earning that moment that we needed to do i, I love that. hearing that because i just I, I feel like he's just such a confident director and so he earns that because I, I remember reading somewhere that like the studio also wanted more kind of scenes of like flashback. It's like, and he pushed back. It's like, no, it needs to be grounded in space. Ironically, it's just, it, he knows exactly what he's doing. He does. And he's very determined to get what he's doing. I mean, frankly, to get that movie to happen, you know, space movies, when we made it, when he came, as I said, and told us the story in, you know, in, in the meeting room before he'd even finished the script at that point, all the studios were saying we don't make space movies space movies bomb they do terribly in the box office we're not making a space movie and it was a space movie with a female protagonist which was pretty rare back then and a female protagonist who was on her own for most of the movie you know to get that movie made take took so much determination so much strength of vision and not giving in to oh let's cut back down to the ground let's do this you know all of those sort of things to to get it made the way it was made yeah it's 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 quite an achievement i'd say <laughs> just that yeah yeah a, i would a, agree <laughs> a, a woman on her own in space lord knows it didn't work for aliens so why why can't it's um <laughs> what a flop that what a, what a what a waste <laughs> of time that movie was um but uh, you, you mentioned like, like, uh, you know, we talked about earning it and sort of, you know, uh, getting in her, her space in, in terms of like experiencing what, what she's going through and needing a breath, uh, a breath of, of, uh, uh, you know, a chance to, to catch our breath the way, same way that she does, uh, in that moment. But like, I, I wanted to talk to you too, about I think immediately prior to that moment, just before she does get in it, there's, there's some, um, first person POV shots and when there's there's one longer take in particular. So I wanted to know, um, number one, it's it's one of my favorite moments when when uh, Kowalski's floating away and he turns his music on again. Like that's a moment that I'm just like, oh, like it's a long shot. You see him tiny, very tiny in the distance and he's still talking. He's talking about how beautiful the earth is. And then he turns his music on again and he kind of floats away. And then pretty immediately after that, we cut to this really claustrophobic inside the mask first person POV shot. So I, I wanted to know about the the challenges of creating that first person stuff as opposed to, uh, you know, the, the more traditional third person camera angles. It, 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 there's nothing, you know, as I said, uh, 
the more you can shoot, the better on the whole. The more you can ground things in something physical, something real, an actor's actual performance, the better. When we were doing those, there was nothing. It was all animated. From scratch. Generated from scratch, yeah. Which has advantages. It meant we could change it, as I said later, when we had to build up the tension there. We had the flexibility to be able to change it. But the pressure on getting the details right so that it feels real is that much greater you know the way the way things move the way you see a hand grab everything takes a lot more work to to make a pov you know to make it believable to make it so that you can invest in those moments it's quite hard to tell the story as well as what's happening to her you know and but but it's also very intense when it's successful because you you really feel you know you're you go through what she's going through so it's very powerful when it works but it was a lot harder well and particularly in light of that note that the studio gave about the the sort of fetal position moment not not being earned or or, or you know that's that's cool that's well also i'm i'm curious i'm surprised that this movie didn't make more people nauseous, if that makes sense, because so much of it is like spinning around in space and being in uh, in Sandy's position. And she even says in the beginning, like, well, it's hard to keep down my lunch. And that's before she gets tossed around like a rag doll. Yeah. Was that a consideration for you guys to like make it like not super nauseating to watch when it comes to the actual, you know, spinning around and that kind of stuff? It was a, it was a bit of a concern. Yes, definitely. Uh, I'm not sure Alfonso changed anything on the, you know, <laughs> I think he, he wanted <laughs> Wanted the impact of it to be great, but um, but it was a slight worry as to yeah would would some people just not be able to watch it particularly in three D you know it, it adds adds to that effect. so yeah mm -hmm. wait are there any other specific moments we want to talk about before we before we move on um, uh, oh go, I, I just want to talk about the end that the when she's hurling to Earth and then actually gets to Earth and almost drowns and I that I feel like that was the moment it's like is she really gonna drown. Like, <laughs> get through all that. There, there was um, that that leftover tension of just like, what next? You know, like, yeah, what is there? Really? Is there a shark going to show up or something? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that whole sequence with uh, again, all the, the basically the entire spaceship falling to Earth, um, kind of like we were talking about earlier. There's so many little different bits and pieces um, that goes into you know that whole sequence. What do you remember from shooting that one? Not which which bit of the sequence are you asking about really the, um, where the entire like it's all falling to earth and that great score is like swelling so okay so as she's coming down as it's yeah breaking and it's burning up, up, and all up. Of yeah, that, yeah yeah um that was that was a little bit more like traditional filmmaking i'd say it was a bit more like a normal movie because there was quite a few edits in there you know we were cutting in and out we weren't w with her so much um it was a, a little bit more like traditional movie you know to try and I mean, part of what I remember is how, you know, we used a lot of technology, but, but one of the things <clears throat> I always love about filmmaking is is when you do stuff with a rubber band and a piece of string as, as much as car assembly robots, you know, and getting the shaking of the Soyuz and getting her feeling that, you know, the vibrations, etc., was, you know, the, the set was balanced on a few car inner tubes and there were 
grips out there shaking it frantically trying to you know trying to do it it's kind of I, I, think I, I think i came across some of some of that behind the scenes stuff of people just kind of jumping on the back of the set like <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know that's that's what works that's the way to do it yeah that's uh, great. great yeah i love that that was that was a part of making this movie as much as the i mean not as much because you only did it for the one thing but like just every, it's such a kitchen sink approach. Like whatever, what do we need to do for this particular moment? And do we oh, need yeah, to invent an entire new light rig, or do we need to just have like four dudes jump on the back of this set? <laughs> yeah, there were there were plenty of other times where we went pretty basic. And, yeah, you know, yeah. As, as oh, that's great. Oh, you're a clever son of a bitch, man. Cal, was there anything else you wanted to talk about? Yeah, there's 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 one thing I wanted to ask about, right? Like, so like we've just spent what an hour and ten minutes talking about how like meticulously planned this movie was and how things needed to be invented and stuff like that. But like, one of my favorite parts about like filmmaking and things like that are like the happy accidents. So like, I wanted to ask you like, what was what were some of the stuff that like wasn't planned but like serendipitous moments that like. You couldn't have you couldn't have thought out that kind of like made it to the final cut that like it's just like this just kind of happened and it's cool it went down this way. Uh, uh, yeah, interesting question. I'm gonna have to think back. And and I totally agree. Happy accidents are essential to filmmaking. And and however carefully we planned it, we tried to make sure we had the fluidity and flexibility on set to allow for happy accents and certainly to allow for the actors to have the freedom to give the performance they needed to give. And that was one of the most challenging things about it is having to stick within the tight limitations because of the long shots and how to make it work, but making sure there was enough freedom for happy accidents. Um, trying to think of some happy accidents that were in there. I feel it might have come down to things like the studio note about the about the umbilical scene, just like you know stuff yeah, like one. that, to where you can really kind of diagnose other other things. And I, actually, I've I've thought of another one. Um, this wasn't on set. This was the day we were finishing the movie. Uh, <laughs> we we were, as I said, the 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 first shot we worked on was the opening shot, and it was the last shot we finished, and we were showing it to Alfonso for the very last time. And he is such a stickler for detail and he's never satisfied. He wants everything to be better. And we knew it, it was looking great, but we knew that, you know, he'd find something to comment on. God, and we'd what run did out he ask for? <laughs> well, so we, what we, one of the things we do when you see a shot, when you've seen it a thousand times, all you look for is these tiny little things that don't really matter. And one of the most important things is trying to keep a big picture view of it. And one of the ways we do that is the same trick that painters do you know have done for hundreds of years is you look at it you look at your painting in a mirror you see it the other way around you see it with fresh eyes you can judge it for what it is so we sometimes we flip our shots around you know left to right so that you can look at it with a fresh eye but of course with gravity because there's no up and down we actually decided hey why don't we turn it upside down and we'll show it to Alfonso that way he'll see it with a fresh eye and he'll love it because it's great and it will all be fine and and we'll <laughs> we'll have finished uh so we did that and we showed it to him and and you know we were all saying god doesn't it look so good upside down it's great you know the first part of it is just works so fantastically upside down and as i said with alfonso he's so determined he knows what he wants and he's willing to get it and he said we're going to do it upside down 
So on the day that we'd supposedly finished the movie, and we couldn't we couldn't just flip the whole shot because it had to turn over halfway because the second half didn't work upside down. Uh, but so we could flip the first half, we could leave the second half where it was, and there was a couple of minutes in the middle where we had to slowly turn from one to another, and that meant completely re-rendering the shot, you know, that bit of the shot and redoing it. It's another 5,000 years. And it was, <laughs> it was another couple of months, I think. And, but, he, but he knew it would make a difference, and he'd managed to persuade the studio to give us the time and the money to do it, and it made a difference. That's hilarious. That was. Uh, did you guys have like martinis packed with you would, uh, for the end of that screening? Or anything? <laughs> That's great. Well, I actually wanted to ask because I feel like, and I, I very much feel like it after this conversation, short of actually shooting the movie in space, it feels like Alfonso got every single thing that he saw in his vision in this movie. Is there literally anything that you guys had to be like okay i think we just have to compromise on this one and not have it in the movie or did he literally get everything uh no i you know there are lots of compromises um mm -hmm. uh i'm trying to think of one now but yeah sometimes you have to compromise you know to your credit i just feel like you guys solved every problem somehow in the most creative way sometimes <laughs> he, he he has a great way of yeah, making you want to solve every possible problem. Um, well, and it, and it wound I, up being so, so tight, too. Like, I mean, it's what is it, 80, 84, 85 minutes when the credits roll, something like that. Like, it's, it's, it's so tight and it's so breathlessly paced that, you know, I, I guess the question would be like, you know, nothing was anything lost wholesale or was it just nips and tucks to keep it, keep it moving at that pace? Do you know, there, there was, there was one sort of significant sequence that we did a lot of work on that was lost um, because, you know, it, it, it needed to, it's very hard to nip and tuck because it's mostly continuous shots. So, uh, you know, to get the pacing right generally had to be done in previs before we, sh we shot it. But there were some moments where we could, as I was saying in the fire sequence, and then there was another one where we, one animator I think worked for months and months and months because it was hard you couldn't share the work between different animators because it was continuous uh and he worked for months and months and months on this one particular sequence and that was all he did on the whole film and then it got cut from the film <laughs> and it was it was a great sequence it wasn't anything about how how you know the sequence looked it just yeah, the pacing yeah. of the movie had to be changed. Yeah. Well, it wouldn't be a movie if somebody's hard work didn't end up going away forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anatoly. Nostrovia. So what movie lists uh, does this this belong on? So uh, it has shown, it's been on, our, it was on our top 10 VFX innovations of the 21st century, which is one of the longer titles we've ever had for a movie list as well. But I, I think, you know, it's deservedly so congrats on that, Tim. Um, <laughs> very, I don't, you know, to be honest, I don't know that I've ever actually talked to somebody that I've put on a movie list. I'm just now realizing that. This really? Is, I'm, yeah. I'm kind I don't of, know. Surely I have. I think you have. You I, had to, I had to. I had to. Certainly not for this long. Um, uh, so I'm just, I'm, I'm very through the looking glass right now. Um, sound design wound up on our sound design list. Uh, then the, of course, top 12. We did 12. We couldn't only pick 10. Top 12 long takes of all time. I guess our, that movie list needed to be longer 
than than usual, I guess, uh, you know, thematically speaking. Um, the uh, so the the opening shot was was on the list uh, as well as the car sequence from from Children of Men that we that that one made it on there. Um, but uh, and I'm sure it's it's gotten a few more honorable mentions over the years. But those are the three main ones that it's that it showed up on. Uh, on you know, honestly, on three lists is real good. For us. It's not yeah. bad. That's we've, more than most movie we yeah. we discuss. I feel we've, like we've run into some some movies on this show that that haven't really shown up on any. But are there any other um, uh, lists could, that this ought to show up on? You could throw this on top ten CGI. Like, sure. This this is probably the cover image for like CGI. Not that we have a list for this, but this is maybe my favorite Sandy Bullock movie. Hot take. There it's you go. a great role for her. Yeah. It's a great one. Mm-hmm. Is it Miss Congeniality? I don't know. I do love it. Uh, yeah, I do love it. <laughs> She's my, had a lot of good movies. Okay. Yeah. For your your soft spot for for gravity, I, I have a soft spot for Speed. So yeah. Uh, well, fair. My my parents bought me Speed on VHS for Christmas one year, and we re- we rented it like the week before Christmas and watched it, and then on Christmas morning I got a copy of Speed on VHS that had been taped back closed, and I was like, you guys. <laughs> You guys bought me the movie and then opened it so we could watch it last week. Anyway, that's right. So that's that's my Sandra, Sandra Bullock. You know, there's a guy that's trying to collect every VHS copy of Speed in existence. I'll have to see if I still have mine somewhere. Maybe it's in an attic, one of my childhood homes. We've talked we talked a little bit about science fiction and and how this movie relates to it. But frankly, like this movie does not feel sci-fi to me. And I, no. Tim, I think that's a credit to, to the work you guys did in making it so grounded. Like, I, I don't want to put this on a sci-fi list. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not. It's all like real space stations that are floating above us in a non-shrapnel <laughs> right. form right, right now. It's just it's a science movie. It accidentally yeah. takes place in space, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that being said, uh, there's a list that we haven't made yet that I would like to put it on uh, survival movies. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So, it's, I mean, it's a great, I love a survival movie, and this is a great one. Yeah, like, I mean, put it in there with, you know, I mean, there's the castaways and the revenants and the, you know, uh, 127 hours. I think you would probably, Tim, the other way that we approach movie lists is we don't, it's not an actual ranking. It's just like, we'll, we'll pick a topic and then break 10 different versions of that topic down. Um, so we could, you know, there's a horror wing of that, too, that this could be right next to Texas Chainsaw Massacre or, or Green Room or something like that, you know. Um even even something like Rambo, I, I'm getting excited about the top ten survival movies. I think, I think that would be a I good think, list. I would watch all the movies on top, that list. I love a survival movie. Yeah. Those movies where you just have to survive until dawn, kind of, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a whole subgenre. Um, any, anything else spring to mind? We don't. We don't Ladies in space. Ladies in space. I mean, there's not many. It'd be a crime if we couldn't come <laughs> yeah. up with ten of them. <laughs> I think we could. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they made a bunch of alien movies, so um, that's at least mm-hmm. five. Um, okay, well, I'll, I'll get to work on that top ten survival movies list. I mm-hmm. think that'll be that'll be great. I'll run it past you, Tim, before we before I put it into edit. Um, shall we move on to things you didn't know? Some torf. It'll be this int- one might be we've we've never done this with someone who actually helped make the movie, yes. so I don't know if there's anything I'm gonna be able to trick Tim. So on. we we've we've taken to calling this segment Torf because at one point our producer Dan wrote T or F on a whiteboard and showed it to us in the middle of, of us taping <laughs> okay. one of these episodes. And and it just looked like the word torf. And we're like, what are you talking <laughs> yeah. about? Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
so uh, so typically Alex uh, and our producer Tayo have some have some sort of trivia that we kind of frame in true or false. So it'll this will be an interesting take on Torf. Yeah. Uh, having you here to, I guess, confirm or deny or or tell us that we were totally wrong about it, which is entirely possible. <laughs> and of course, often stories get told by the people that made the film, and I think that never happened. <laughs> you know, so there's 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 a sort of gray area of true or false. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It, and that gray area it's is called torf. So let's let's get after it. Uh, what do we have, Alex? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so some of these are like maybe maybe we can get Tim on some of these because the first one's kind of just a small story detail. But uh, Callan Clint, true or false? Uh, in the International Space Station, when Doctor Stone finds out there is a fire, besides the notebook monitor displaying the warning shows, uh, the warning shows two photos of the screenwriter Jonas Kwan and his family. True or false? I'm gonna go with true. Uh, yeah, that feels like a, as good a place as yeah, any to, yeah, to yeah. work a cameo in. Like, yeah, how else are you going to cameo in space? Also, uh, like I'll go true. Up, that also levels up the storytelling too. It's like here's a person that just like lost their family. That 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 feels like it fits. That is true. You're correct. Uh, I thought you were. Uh, gonna, I thought you were gonna tell so, me like, no, it's false. It's actually it was his dad, like yeah, his dad, dad or something. Yeah. <laughs> So Tim, was uh, that was I, did did you ever see that actual picture, or did you have to create that digitally from scratch? It, it was a real picture that we scanned in and put in into the movie. I managed to get a picture of my family in there as well. Oh, not, nice! Not quite so noticeable, oh, but nice. they're, they're tucked in there somewhere. Yeah, that's great. See, this is that'll already, be fun when you actually send your son the, to yeah. Yeah, there, there, there'll be. I've got a question for you at the end. So, oh, good. Uh, oh, oh, this yeah. is already the this is already the best torque we've ever torqued. <laughs> so let's let's keep going. I know. I feel like maybe we should have had Tim bring the yeah. <laughs> It might be more interesting. Sounds like he's got at least one. Yeah. All right. True or false? The entire film was shot on digital cameras. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say false because I feel like the Earth stuff was shot on film. I, I'm going to say true because you said false. All right. I got to give it to Cal. He is... That's... True or that's false, and he got the extra credit. It was the closing sequence. Yeah, because oh, I, nice. I think that that does a good job of like juxtaposing the two different environments. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about the stuff that actually takes place on Earth. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I thought you were talking about like every time we see Earth in the movie, it was shot on film. I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last one. Alfonso Cuarón was inspired by the film Marooned in 1969. I mean, aren't we? He was all? not inspired, was inspired in 1969. In 1969 but, yeah. No, that's what I'm clarifying. The, the 1969 film was made film in 1969. Marooned. The 1969 film Marooned. Um, I guess if he was, I'm going to have to include that on my survival uh, survival movies movie list. Um, sure, true. I'm going to go false. Tim, do you know this one? I believe it's true. It's true. Yep. Ah. Uh, Yep. He saw it as a child and he said it was very well researched and they really took seriously the realistic approach, which obviously you see in Gravity. I, was, I, th I thought you would have been like, no, it's Robin and Crusoe on Mars. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, um, but that is that is Torf. Tim, did you you said you had a question for us? Well, I think I think the answer is going to be quite easy. But who is who is the only other human character that appears in the flesh in the movie rather than a CG character. 
visually? Who plays? I literally, I there is like a famous name that is like in the credits, and I I looked this up in the yesterday. Well, not, not, it's not the voice. It's not, not Ed Harris. Although yeah, I did, Ed, I no. did Ed Harris. That was the name. That I did want to ask if, if Ed Harris was a was an Apollo thirteen nod, because just hearing like he is the voice of NASA. I, I feel like he in, is, in my brain, and so like yeah. He is the voice of NASA. It, it just met you knew exactly what was going on yeah. the second you heard his voice, right. didn't you? It was, yeah, it's, it's some yeah. of that like shorthand based on our, our collective pop culture knowledge, kind of. Yeah. yeah. And um, the the guy that like in the beginning, so it was like a three man mission and the, you know, the first guy that dies to just establish the stakes and you see his face with the hole through it, that that he was not. That's that's all up. Uh, He's CG. Was yeah, it the CG. was it the the frozen woman in the uh, in the oh. the Jaws sort of jump scare moment? There, there are there are two people in the in there, but they're both dead, so yeah. they don't count. Here's, it's not the frog that swims past the camera at the end because we're talking about people. Um, I feel like this shouldn't be hard, but it's really hard. I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, so there is a little face that waves at the window where Kowalski is talking to someone in the cockpit of space shuttle. Like the we're space. talking like right, shuttle. The we're, the, the right at the beginning, the yeah. space shuttle, and someone waves at Kowalski, and that's me. I, I filmed oh, myself. Hey. <laughs> I got myself in the movie. That is very, a very proper tourf right there. That's <laughs> good to know. That's incredible. That's I love that. <laughs> Um, well, that's a wonderful turf to end on. So let's move uh, real quick next to, to our next topic. Um, I think we can all. This is the MVP of the movie. Who's who's the MVP of the, this movie? I think uh, we can all. I think we can all agree. So like on the count of, we'll go one, two, three, and then name name the uh, the MVP. Uh, ready? One, two, three. Tim. Tim. Webber. Uh, that's that's definitely a first that we've actually gotten to talk to our collective film MVP uh, for one of these. Um, but I mean, honestly, like we've talked so much about it. Like the, this movie doesn't uh, it, it doesn't hit the same without all of the the crazy shit you guys pulled off. Frankly, so that's very it's very kind of you, but I think it has to be Alfonso. I'm sorry. He I mean, does just look, he gets a lot a, of it. I'll give him a close second, but you know. I'll, yeah. <laughs> and Sandra was amazing, I have to say. If if you knew what she had to go through, uh, sort of, you know, the complexities of hitting her three-dimensional marks as she was being suspended in weird positions from wires and still give an emotional performance, you know, she, uh, incredible. Well, I mean, listen, any any of the, the seven Academy Award that, that got handed out, um, you know, they're, they're all in the running, but... Yeah. Also, I feel like it is an underappreciated Clooney role. Not that he's like going totally out of character, but I feel like not a lot of people could be that kind of calm oh. presence as well as he could have been. This is Pete Clooney, right? He's in this it's movie. Yeah. He's in this movie for what five minutes, and all he is is just George <laughs> Clooneying in a spacesuit, and it and it just the effortless charm that is just yeah. exuded in that mm -hmm. performance over a radio. Like you don't even see his face most of the time. He's just like, hey, chill out, ha ha. Like, let me tell you about this time, like this memory of Mardi Gras, it's amazing. Um, I don't think that gets him the MVP, but he's no. he was great. Yeah, yeah, I just want to mention him. Yeah, no, yeah. He, had, we he, had, had yeah. Of, he has a lot of charm. <laughs> he had to he give does. it to Clooney. He does, good, good Clooney. Um, 
Well, let's move on to uh, Cal. We got time for for one last segment. One last segment. One last. <laughs> this segment. one's gonna always... be. This one's gonna be tricky. This is a. This might be the hardest version of this segment. So I am a big fan of Nicolas Cage, and I believe that Nicolas Cage has been in many bad movies and many great movies, but no movie is worse because yep. Nicolas Cage is in it. So my question <laughs> is: If this movie was made with Nick Cage and a Nicolas Cage of any era. What role would that be, and what era of Nicolas Cage are we talking about here? I mean, let's be real. I'll start it off. Let's be real. I think all he could really do is Kowalski, and I'm putting it like, uh, like early '90s, you know, like Moonstruck to you know, um, National uh, Treasure, Nick, Cage. the the Rock, Nick Cage, maybe. And Rock, Nick Cage is too serious. I I I think it's well, like. He's- he he's a little he's a little nerdy in that one too, but yeah, he doesn't have the charm. I mean, look. Either way, this is the only time anybody will suggest swapping one for one Nicolas Cage and George Clooney. Like, I don't yeah. think that's ever happened before, yeah. and it might I'm have never happened. On, I'm, I'm blanking on the title of the David Lynch movie he made with Laura Dern. Why why am I Wild why, at Heart? Wild at Heart. Yeah, I think like mm-hmm. Wild at Heart. Nicolas Cage is as close of a Nicolas Cage as you can get to pulling off Kowalski. But it wouldn't be better. It would like, not. That's part no, of this I question. Agree. It would, yeah. I agree. This, this is this. Is, Clooney is excellent at this. What about as the voice of Mission Control, a slightly mad Nicolas Cage? Not quite sure what's going on down there. Well, yeah, like uh, or the guy she contacts, or who like has the howling dog. It would be really funny if that was randomly Nicolas Cage. <laughs> oh God. What if it was actually Nicolas Cage that he's just yeah, playing yeah. around on his ham radio? Nicolas Cage would I, have a ham radio too. Yeah, 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 he would. I mean that that would be like Matt Damon and in Interstellar levels of taking me out of the movie. If she's like, Are, is this? I'm sorry, is this Nick Cage? Like that. <laughs> that would have been wild. I suppose he yeah. could have been the uh, the guy that Kowalski sees in the little window uh, at the beginning, but that you know we can't we that can't replace him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do think it'd be a little funny if he was the guy who was killed in the first fifteen minutes because they could say he was in the movie, he could do the press tour, and then he, you see more of the inside of his face than the actual face. I don't think that makes it better though. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. no, I don't. Yeah. yeah. Um, so good. We confirmed that the movie's not that much better with with Nicolas Cage. Tim, do you do you agree? You know, you know, do you have any regrets about not having Nicolas Cage in this movie? <laughs> it's not. It's not in my top ten of regrets about okay. the movie. Okay. <laughs> That's the thing that you notice every like that I was asking about earlier. Like every time you watch this, we Cage. just had Nicolas Cage. No, that was the thing that Alfonso had to compromise on. They couldn't get Nick for <laughs> it. Get Nick Cage. He had to settle for Clooney. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, well, let's talk about where this movie, uh, where this movie ranks. And again, like we've, so the way, Tim, the way that this, this whole process worked was, it was Alex, Cal, and I all made our favorite 100 movies of all time list. Our producer, Dan, made his as well. And then he created some bananas algorithm that he refuses to explain to us to merge them all. And there's a waiting point system. And he created the top 100 but obviously there's there's a lot he alleges he uses math he used math in some capacity but frankly i I don't believe him no i I don't either um he just overruled the ones he didn't like exactly yeah Yeah. he just kind of cobbled it together and said like yeah no i I did it in a spreadsheet so you know there's math um uh and (laughs) this is another first for us in, in in you know it was a weird uh this is me because it's not on my list, uh, <laughs> frankly. Uh, so this is me apologizing, I guess, for that. But it was um, 
you know, watching, like I said earlier, like I saw the movie, I, I hadn't seen the movie in 10 years. Like I saw the movie twice in theaters. I distinctly remember seeing it and then being like, wait, not even the spacesuits were real? And then going back and, and watching it again. Um, so it wasn't on mine. Guys, where was it? Was it on yours? It didn't make the final cut, but it made the first draft. So when I had 175 films, it was on that. But by the time it got to by the time it got to 100, it unfortunately wasn't on mine either. <laughs> well, unless it's on Dan's list, I'm the lone lady floating in space. Uh, it is on my list. I'm I regret to inform you, it is just barely. It is number 99. But I will say when I uh, wait, was I, I was supposed to say the number, right? Yeah, that's yeah. fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what we're doing. Uh, it's funny because I remember I, I showed my list to my sister just to make sure I wasn't forgetting any major movies from our childhood. And the first thing she said was, God, you did love gravity. Like she specifically remembered that from 10 years ago, me not shutting up about gravity. And now 10 years later, here I am not shutting up about gravity. No, but I, I love this movie. It's, it's definitely on my list. But that's the fun thing about doing this show too, is like, I obviously I didn't rewatch every movie I've ever seen when I, when I made the list. And so like running into, it's funny because I've, you know, I've run into movies that I didn't think about that, you know, Cal or Alex or, or Dan had on the list that I'm like, oh, man, that really should have been on my list. And then I've also run into movies that were on my list. And I'm like, why did I put that on my list? And so it's it's been a at, at some point we're going to need to revisit this. We're going to go on this this crazy adventure and then add and subtract and, and rejigger. But um, Listen, but anyway, well, no, and that's, I, and I, that's... Have, I have this, though, which is where mm -hmm. it does exist on the yeah. list. But before I do that, Tim, I got one question for you. Since you're on our uh, top 100 movie podcast of all time, can you uh, can you give us a top five? I know it's always hard to like say this is my singular favorite movie of all time. But at this moment in time, what are like a couple of films that you hold in extremely high regard? I, I am so bad at picking lists of anything. I, so I, are that, we. It's so, are yeah, we. <laughs> it's so hard. Um, I, the one I'll tell you is one that just always comes to mind. Uh, and I suspect if I watched it now, it wouldn't be as high as it is. But is Amadeus? Just when I saw it, I was blown away by it. And it moved me. And it was just incredible. I've been talking uh, a lot so about that movie. We're going to we're gonna end up talking about that on this show because it is very high on my list as well. Yeah. yeah. That was a great movie. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's, uh, let's do this. Oh, wait. Is this on Dan's list? Do we know? Or is it just me? I'm told no, it's not on Dan. I think it's okay. just you. Yeah. You're, okay. you're right. the, the lone woman in space. So yep. not 100 right here. OK, pop, pop, pop it open. Ooh, ooh, there's multiple. No, there's not multiple. There are multiple sheets in here. Let me just uh -oh. make sure that this is. Good. You got you to read them in the right order. Yeah. This is another thing, Tim, that, that these envelopes have gotten progressively more complicated. <laughs> yes, yeah. We're, we've been gamifying this, this show as we go. It's uh, 270. 270 on the list. And so showing, showing up on the tail end of, of Alex's list on the strength of that gets, gets you 270. I appreciate that we use two different colors to spell the name of this title. <laughs> That's nice. I guess normally <laughs> movies with, with more than one word in the title get each different word is a different color. So. But yeah. yeah. Oh, I dig but. it. Yeah, but I, I, I got to say, the thing about doing these lists is too is like, I, I stand by pretty much every movie on my list so far, but it's like, man, that should be higher, man. And it's like, if you'll indulge me for a moment, this is, we talk, filmmakers talk about the movies that made them want to make movies. This is one of the movies that made me think, oh, I want to talk about movies. Like genuinely, this is my first movie that I kind of covered in the industry. So 
Thank you, Tim. This feels like a full circle moment for me. And good job. Well, I'm great. Good, I'm, I'm <laughs> good very movie. Glad. I'm very glad. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it was it's great, and that's one of the things that I love about doing this show is revisiting some of these movies and, and watching them with you know with different eyes than the first time. Um, but uh, but thank you for being here, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much was, for coming. This was great. Uh, it was so much pleasure. fun talking about this movie. Like. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's great talk, talking about it and great chatting to you. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, and congrats again I, on on ten years of, ten. of gravity. Here's to here's to ten more. Yeah, <laughs> like I that, still can't like wrap my head sense. around That's, it. But yeah. <laughs> I still don't know how you did it. Um, but that is, uh, yeah. No, hopefully, hopefully we never do. Um, but, uh, but that's all the time we got. So thank you, uh, again, Cal, Alex, thanks for, for being here once again. Uh, thank you to producer Tayo Yakin, our technical producer, Mariah Franz and Jamie Parcel for doing what he can to make us look good. Uh, and honestly, you know what, for more, more so than any other episode we've done so far, uh, no thanks to Dan whatsoever. Uh, he's just made this whole process so much harder. Um, a, a human, a human bumping of the lamp. That's Dan Parker's is a, a human lamp bump. Um, but uh, if you also are want to listen to this without actually watching us, we are available in all the places that you get your podcasts. So track us down over there. Uh, and we'll see you next time when we're going to be talking about another modern, uh, modern Marvel, technical filmmaking Marvel. Uh, Carol reads The Third Man. Uh, so we'll go back in time to watch a film noir uh, next time. So we'll see you then. Tim, thanks again. Uh, and I really appreciate you. you now instilling the fear in me that if I'm watching a movie on the plane, the guy that made it might be judging me. <laughs> <laughs> that is a thing Remember that, that never crossed my mind. Before this. <laughs> uh, but thanks again for being here. Uh, and uh, stay safe and be good, everybody. We'll see you next time. What if you discovered you could move between the worlds of dreams and real life? That's the story of Dream Breachers, where Evan wakes up on his 12th birthday and realizes that something he dreamt about the night before had actually happened. With the help of his friends, a reappearing stranger, and a mysterious organization called the Dream Academy, Evan will discover what it means to be a Dream Breacher. Dream Breachers is a high-stakes sci-fi mystery adventure about the highs and lows of having all your dreams come true and is perfect for kids ages 8 to 12. If that sounds like a dream to you, you're in luck. You can listen to Dream Breachers now, wherever you get your podcasts.